heading towards civil war, a catalogue of human rights abuses in North Korea. Unfortunately, it does bring back to those, certainly of my age, memories of uh, the end of the Second World War. Is Irish Republican terrorism back on the mainland and talk of no to the pound in the EU for an independent Scotland? But what about NATO? Hello, I'm James Hurst, Ian for Kate Chabot this week. In the last few hours, there have been further deaths in renewed clashes between police and protesters in central Kiev after a truce agreed yesterday broke down in a matter of hours. Witnesses have reported live rounds, petrol bombs on water cannon at the main protest site, Independence Square. Local television has shown pictures of bodies on the ground close to the square. A hotel lobby has been turned into a makeshift hospital. This doctor is treating injured protesters. You see there are a lot of dead bodies here already, at least five maybe. But I am not sure, you know, I'm busy to, to help other people. Bellets actually, bellets through the body. And where the one who are lucky uh, through limbs, uh, who are not uh, lungs and uh, heart, and they are unfortunately, we cannot help in these conditions here. A meeting between three EU foreign ministers and President Viktor Yanukovych has taken place today in Kiev. William Hague is attending an emergency meeting in Brussels with other foreign ministers to discuss possible sanctions against Ukraine. So what has caused this latest unrest and what are the implications for the rest of the region? Joining us now, the former British ambassador to Ukraine, Robert Robert Brinkley, and with us, as always, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Robert Brinkley, if I can start with you. This latest violence actually started back in November. Is it simply because the president announced closer ties with Russia rather than the EU, or is it more complex? Uh, Hello, James. I'm afraid it's more complex than that. Um, The issue of Ukraine and its orientation, east or west, goes back a very long way. And ever since it became independent when the Soviet Union came to an end in 1991, Ukrainian governments have said that where they see their future is with the European Union. So looking not only west, but looking to the future, to uh, a free market, to democracy and the rule of law. And All the governments of Ukraine have had that objective, including President Yanukovych. When he was elected in 2010, he made a big play of his wish to take Ukraine closer to Europe. For five years, the association agreement with the European Union has been under negotiation. So it was a huge shock to many people in Ukraine, where there's a majority for for joining Europe, when... President Yanukovych and his government turned round in November and said they were suspending the talks. What changed? Well, I think there was heavy pressure from Russia um, because, unfortunately, many people in Russia have never accepted, at least with their hearts, they may have accepted it with their heads but not their hearts, that Ukraine is a separate country, that it's independent and should be able to make its own decisions. And so... Uh, the Russians, and particularly the Russian leadership, are absolutely determined to keep Ukraine in their camp. And after many years of not worrying about the EU, they were much more worried about Ukraine joining NATO. 
um, they suddenly uh, really came on with the heavy breathing and more than that, stopping Ukraine's exports to Russia last summer and put the frighteners on the Ukrainian leadership. Christopher, EU foreign ministers visiting, three of them visiting Kiev today, holding an emergency meeting in Brussels. Why is the EU so concerned? I mean, it's not like it needs more members. Well, I mean, if you talk to the EU and talk to the, the foreign ministers that, that there today in Brussels, go to NATO next week where there's a defence ministers meeting, and you'll find they all have the same view. This could be the biggest crisis in Europe since Bosnia in the 1990s. That's the first thing. They certainly see it is uh, a, a question of uh, President Putin of Russia, perhaps eyeballing the West. He wants, if you believe what they say, he wants uh, Ukraine in his own version of the EU, which is the uh, Eurasian Economic Union, but that may be just a long-term sideline. And also, he has other things on the horizon. I mean, for example, he's got quite a big naval base in Sevastopol in in, in the area. Uh, There is a a story going around at the moment uh, in the... In, I suppose, at NATO and the EU to watch out for what's going to happen in Crimea. What happens if they go for independence? Will Putin have to intervene there? Certainly, uh, Putin is now eyeing Moldavia, Georgia, and these are the other areas in which this whole thing can spread. Therefore, when the foreign ministers in Brussels today and the defence ministers in Brussels next week gather together... They are looking at this and saying, listen, it doesn't matter what else is going on in, in the world, I- Iran, Afghanistan, uh, Syria, whatever. This is an important situation which could spread, and we have no control over this apart from leaning on the banks in Vienna and London. That's about all we can do. Robert Brinkley, is this a politically-led concern from the EU, or is there a genuine security concern there? Well, at the moment, it's politically-led. Um, But as people, including former President Kravchuk, have been saying, there is a risk of civil war in Ukraine. The risks at the moment are very big. That makes it all the more important to get the situation back into the negotiating track and stop the violence on the streets. And that, I think, is what the three European foreign ministers are in Kiev for today, talking to President Yanukovych, to try to achieve that. It sounds like, from from the way both of you are describing this, actually Ukraine and its people have become a bit of a bit of a political power pawn between Europe and Russia. Uh, yeah, well, that, that of course is partly a function of where it is. Um, it's right between Russia and Western Europe. It occupies a large and very strategic bit of land. It's the largest country by area in Europe, larger than France. The only one that's bigger is actually the European part of Russia. And it's not just big. It has very fertile soil. It has minerals, well-developed coal, steel, chemical industries, and 45 million well-educated people. So this is a big and important country, and it's right next to the eastern borders of the EU. So if things go even worse in Ukraine, there is going to be a knock-on effect in Poland, Hungary, Slovakia, uh, our European members. Christopher, very volatile situation. What happens now? Well, when you see, uh, when you hear, for example, some of the European ministers saying, well, Mr. Yanukovych really ought to go, it suggests that there is somebody uh, that they have in mind to sort of to move in. When we look at this opposition, 
don't think of that this is a political opposition necessarily on the streets. If you look what these people are, those different groups, they're far right, far left, middle of the road. Somebody, as I noticed this morning, describing one element of them, a bit like the WI. It is not that concentrated political uh, alternative that people imagine it might be. I don't think at the moment that the EU uh, has an idea of what to do next, other than perhaps get tough about sanctions, and that's personal sanctions through the banks. Well, you mentioned that Defence Minister's meeting next week. Uh, we will be reporting from there. No doubt we'll be talking more about it then. Uh, in the meantime, Robert Brinkley, former uh, British ambassador to Ukraine, thank you for joining us. Still to come, letter bombs sent to army recruitment centres. Are they a blip or a resurgence of Northern Ireland dissidents? And forget the pound and the EU, wouldn't independent Scotland be welcome in NATO? This is BFBS. Sit rep. Before that, a United Nations panel has accused North Korea of crimes against humanity, including systematic extermination, torture, rape, forced abductions and starvation. Human rights investigators said leaders should face prosecution for torture, mass killings and starvation that could amount to genocide. The chairman of the Independent Commission of Inquiry, Michael Kirby, drew parallels to atrocities carried out by the Nazis during World War II. And we should warn you that his description of some of the evidence is very graphic. One of the witnesses in one of the camps told of how his duties included gathering up the bodies of those who had died of starvation uh, and putting them in a pot and burning them and then taking the ashes but sadly also the remnant of unburned human bodies and then burying that in nearby fields where it proved to be very good fertiliser. Now when you see that image in your mind of bodies being burned and of parts of bodies, unfortunately it does bring back to those, certainly of my age, memories of uh, the end of the Second World War and the horror and the shame and the shock. South Korea welcomed the report, saying it would raise the international community's awareness, while the US said it clearly, it clearly and unequivocally documents the brutal reality of the Pyongyang regime. Uh, North Korea has rejected the report and the people that compiled it. Should we be surprised by this? Joining us now is Andrea Berger from the Royal United Services Institute. Of course, our defence analyst Christopher Lee is still here. Uh, Andrea, first of all, are you, is anybody surprised by the gravity of the allegations and, and, and are they credible? I don't think it's really surprising at all. I mean, we've had defector testimony from those who have lived in detention and labor camps in North Korea and subsequently fled. Uh, we've had satellite imagery of camps all before this report. What this report really adds is profile and, and detail and consolidates that information in one place. And, and for that reason, it has received so much attention. Um, it's, it's very um, debatable, the specific credibility of each piece of information, but altogether it does give um, what's probably a fairly realistic picture of the atrocities carried out in North Korea. Are, are we talking about crimes just against ordinary citizens or, or people put into labour camps or, or what? 
it's likely a mixture of of many of those things and here's exactly why you have discussion of crimes against humanity coming out uh, together with the report Um, but for instance I mean there's forced labor there's probably extermination um, that may target um, individuals simply deemed to be born into a certain degree of loyalty or disloyalty as a matter of fact while others it may be a, a punishment for something specifically committed. The use of the words genocide comparisons with Nazi Germany, is it really at the same level as that? Well, the the term crimes against humanity was really a a legal concept applied for the Nuremberg trials, which of course um, tried to, to capture the egregious nature of crimes committed by a state against its own citizens. So in that respect, the, the parallel does make sense. Um, there's always a lot of emotion that surrounds discussion of Nazi Germany, but in this case it is a particularly terrible situation. Christopher, the world's not surprised to hear that bad things happen in North Korea. Does it do anything about this? Um, if you go back to the uh, the origins of the DMZ, this split in the 1950s, this split between North and South Korea, um, you'll find that there is anecdotal as well as primary source evidence uh, that would suggest that what we're hearing now is not new. That's the first thing to remember. Secondly, the reason that people might get uh, feel that they've got to do supposedly do something, this sort of phrase which usually means you can't do anything, um, is, is regional. You have uh, two things. You have South Korea uh, with its vulnerability, with 27,000 or so US troops in South Korea. Um, you have uh, Japan getting more agitated by the moment. You have China apparently not being able to do very much for their client state. And don't forget China's vulnerability. And this is the most important thing. If China loses the grip on North Korea, China sits with its neighbors, Russia. Pakistan, India and North Korea, now all of them nuclear armed. That is not a comfortable position for China e- e- either. And this is one of the reasons that I would suspect that the, the security people in, in, in and around the White House saying that the Pacific reason, uh, region and China in particular is the most important aspect of their foreign policy. And then you turn around and say, and of course there is North Korea, which is unpredictable. Briefly, uh, Andrea, do you think this report is going to change anything in terms of the world's position and what it actually does? Well, it's certainly raised attention to this issue again. I mean, it is something that we've believed to be going on for a very long time, so it puts it back at the top of the agenda, at least as it relates to to East Asia. And you have had some countries that have responded very clearly and very harshly to the report, some countries cutting off diplomatic relations with North Korea as a result of it, for instance. So there there is some change. Whether um, we see the type of change that we would like to see in, in that um, we would hope the regime would stop this sort of activity, I think that's very unlikely. And, and North Korea really doesn't listen to anyone outside of its borders on anything, and there's no reason to believe that this would be an exception. OK, Andrea Berger from Rusi, thank you for your time today. Should we expect more activity from dissident Republicans in Northern Ireland? Last week, suspect packages were sent to Army Careers offices in England. Some of them described as viable devices. Responsibility was claimed by a group calling itself the IRA. 
a phrase we've not heard for many years. But until now, the overall activity has been relatively quiet. The BBC's Ireland correspondent Andy Martin reports. It's Christmas, a maximum disruption. Why do these people do this? This was how last year ended. They fired what we believe to be Kalashnikov-type weapons in a highly built-up area. He is driving along with a live device. A full detonation would have killed him outright. This guy came in and... uh burnt into flames. It turns out that there was an incendiary device um, he had been hiding under his coat. But aside from posting some letters to military recruitment offices, which were described as having contained potentially viable rather than primed devices, the dissidents have been notably quiet since the new year. Republicanism is, is in a battle at the minute where it has been attacked from all sides. I don't think in, in my time it has ever been under so much pressure. Dominic McGlinchey parted ways with Sinn Féin years ago and is on what is commonly referred to as the dissident wing of republicanism. His father, also Dominic, was once Ireland's most wanted man, a leader of the Irish National Liberation Army who was later shot dead. In republican circles, pedigree counts. Dissidents will be interested in his views. What we are is we are war-weary We just need to think logically about how it is we're going to get out of the Hamlin that we're in. There now exists the genesis of a debate as to whether dissidents ought to move away from shootings and bombings. Part of the reason for that is a string of police and MI5 successes that have brought convictions against Republicans. There have been some high-profile arrests and behind the scenes a lot of disruption to planned dissident attacks. I think the police and the security services have them well penetrated at the moment. Jared Hodgins was an IRA hunger striker. There's going to be a certain amount of people who are going to be killed. It's wrong. To pursue it is only to do, leave yourself open to spending as many years in jail as I did. The BBC's Andy Martin reporting. Let's speak to journalist and broadcaster Chris Ryder, who joins us from Belfast. Uh, Chris, should we be concerned by this apparent return of active dissidents and specifically actually targeting you know, mainland Great Britain? Well, the, the terrorist threat in Northern Ireland has remained that severe um, for the last number of years and we've had short spikes such as the ones before Christmas but the uh, activity by the security forces, the army, MI5 and the police um, uh, there, there is still some army involvement here with the Special Reconnaissance Regiment they have thwarted most of the attacks, and a lot of them indeed have been thwarted across the border in the Irish Republic uh, through active cooperation. Now, I, I think that last week's move to send the letter bombs, n- none of them would really have done very much harm, uh, but th- th- it was a propaganda exercise. It was an element within this dissident movement, uh, which is splintered in all directions, trying to make propaganda and trying to show they're still there, that there's a conceivable threat. Well, I, mean, the, the, I think that Northern Ireland terrorism, you know, smoulders on, really. I think what, what might have particularly piqued people's interest in this, if you, if you can take it out to that level, is the intent, is the fact that it was for, for once targeted in Great Britain and targeted at the British Army. And, 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 and that, for you know, people living in the comfort of England, is a reminder of the bad old days that we perhaps haven't had that people in Northern Ireland have had. Reminder of the battle days, but um, you know, because of the deterrent activity by the security forces here in Northern Ireland, the ambitions of these dissident groups to take uh, attacks out in England 
it, it has been thwarted on a number of occasions. And we don't hear about them largely because of the interceptions. But the, the threat is constant from Northern Ireland terrorism. It, it's low-level threat, but as we all know, um, you know, even a low-level threat can go wrong and, and, and create a, a massive incident, a massive uh, human, humanitarian disaster. So uh, the threat is always there. The threat is real, and, and the security forces remain totally vigilant. As I say, the, the threat here remains severe. And, and, and there's no sign of that being reduced. I mean, the, the packages were described as potentially viable devices. None of them actually exploded. No harm was caused. And it, it, it's tempting to think, oh, well, this is a, a, a small band of amateurs. Is, is, is that a, a, a dangerous no, conclusion to jump to? A small band of amateurs because <clears throat> many, of the, many of the skilled people who were in the original IRA are disillusioned with Sinn Féin IRA policy. They say that they have settled for a protectionist agreement and that the fight to drive the British out of Ireland has to continue. So they have skills in bomb-making and these other things uh, which uh, pose a very severe threat. Uh, so it's not a bunch of amateurs. Uh, they've never been very successful with letter bombs. They've used letter bombs at occasion in the past. Um, there have been one or two people maimed. But today the, uh, the, the measures to detect letter bombs are so sophisticated that it's pretty certain that they're, they're they're headed off before they actually reach the intended victims. Christopher Lee, if I can... Before these attacks, there were big, a number of big alerts at, uh, at the postal sorting offices in Northern Ireland, and I suspect that the, the authorities were aware that something of this sort was happening and that they were looking around to find out if there were any devices on the way. Just briefly bringing Christopher Lee. Christopher, uh, as, as uh, Chris Ryder says, uh, Republican dissidence has been simmering for a long time. Is, is there anything to your mind that suggests this is not just a continuation of that? There are, uh, there are two very simple points. One, I seem to remember, and sitting with Chris Ryder years ago, when you see this is uh, the pirate, the provisional IRA, was born out of an IRA that was willing to talk to the British government. The other thing which I remember Chris teaching me, it's part of the whole sort of sense of community. If you go to Northern Ireland, you know the, the walls that separate the two communities, you know, for, for broadly speaking, Catholic and Protestant communities. Before the peace agreement, there were X number of walls. Now there are five times that number, and we live in peace and we have since the Good Friday Agreement. I think that's the context we have to put all this in. Okay, we'll leave Northern Ireland there. Chris Ryder, thank you for your time today. Uh, let's move to Scotland instead. It may be more than six months until the people there decide if they want to disunite the United Kingdom. But the debate on independence is most definitely building up and speeding up. This week's big talking points have included the ongoing row over whether Scotland could keep the pound and the thorny issue of European Union membership for an independent Scotland. But what about NATO membership? How would that work if the answer is yes on September the 18th? We're joined by Dr Colin Fleming from the Scottish Centre on Constitutional Change at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, what are your feelings on NATO membership? Is it likely to be a problem for an independent Scotland were that to happen? Uh, well, there's a couple of things to consider. I, I think... On the whole, no, it won't be. I think Scotland would be welcomed into NATO, but I think there are, there are some several factors that uh, need to be thought about. Um, and the main discussions, of course, uh, surrounding NATO membership for Scotland have revolved around the nuclear question, both the Scottish Government and the SNP's uh, intent to have our 
uh, written constitution uh, which bans nuclear weapons and the second and uh, intertwined element of this, uh, a timeline for removal of the UK's deterrent. Now these could cause problems uh, for Scotland if, uh, you know, in joining NATO. The first of these has been resolved uh, with the white paper and the, the Scottish Government has underlined that it will sign up to the to NATO strategic concept. So that's one of the major barriers overcome. Uh, the second, I think, is is uh, ongoing and, and there's less certainty. But uh, and on theory, I think that this could cause a problem in terms of the if the if the Scottish Government forced the removal of uh, nuclear weapons uh, from Scotland too early and didn't give the appropriate amount of time to the, the, the UK or the rest of the United Kingdom, then that could be a problem. I don't think that would be, I don't think it would be in anyone's interest to cause a problem but, over but that. But it's negotiable, isn't it? Oh, that's, yes, absolutely. That's, that's, it's got, got scope to be solved. I mean, the, the question over the EU, the, 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 the simple point over the EU seems to be that every uh, member state would have to agree to, to Scotland joining as an independent nation. <laughs> and people like the Spanish wouldn't want to send a, a signal to their restive regions, the, their restless regions, that they could go independent and join. Might they want to do the same with NATO and indeed could, say, the Spanish veto in the same way with NATO? Well, of course they could in theory, but um, in terms of the EU as well, I don't think that's what's happening. The EU, uh, the Spanish have said, uh, despite Barroso's comments uh, the weekend, have stated quite clearly that the Scottish um, referendum on independence is very different from what's happening in Catalonia, the Basque country, and that it's taking part under British constitution where, which allows this to take place. So it's a very different room for that. So I mean, I would disagree. I think Scotland will become part of the EU quite easily, and I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be part of NATO. Whether or not, I mean, the question I think is at what time would it become part of NATO? Would it be immediately you know, part of a transition discussion, or would it come after? And I think that's where we would want to look at it, as of whether, whether uh, states would uh, be against Scotland joining. I, I feel that they wouldn't be if the UK was happy that Scotland would be a member. Christopher Lee, would would, uh, would, would NATO be too bothered if it did or didn't have Scotland? It's, I, I, I don't think that NATO would be too bothered, but it likes to have everybody. London, London might be. You know, it's much better to have somebody on your borders if there were to be independence. And you say, right, yeah, they're, they're in NATO as well, but I don't think it's going to be such an issue. And I bet, I don't know, I'm, having read a lot of the work that uh, Colin Fleming's done on this, is one particular point. If we'd have gone back to 1991, say, when there was still a, a Soviet Union and, the, uh, and an Iron Curtain, I think the issue about joining NATO would be much greater, whereas when it gets to the referendum next September and, and the debate on it, I don't think many, many people in Scotland are bothered about NATO, but they are about the EU. Does defence play really in the decision-making of the voters in Scotland? Um, yes, well, it's odd. It's a salient issue, and it has be become more so, but um, you're right. I mean, in relation to other issues, I don't think it's... Um, one of the, the, the key issues, I mean, people are very interested in it. I don't think, personally, the, the referendum will be won or lost on the defence issue, and I think Christopher Lee is, is correct there. It's a, it's a different strategic age, and I don't think the, you know, if Scotland becomes independent, it will do so in a kind of a much more benign strategic environment, and the, the threat threshold is much less because of that. Um, I think people are interested, but... Um, and I think this will be ramped up as the independence, the referendum becomes closer. Um, 
but we'll have to wait to see. I mean, it is an area um, that has, in terms of the, the wider independence debate, the defence debate, I think, is probably the, the least mature of those because it is reserved and until very recently nobody's been talking about it. Um, very briefly, do you, do you think the, the people will get more answers on defence before referendum day or not? Um, I don't know if there'll be anything official or not. Um, there was quite a lot of information in the white paper. I would imagine um, we might get snippets here and there of, of what might come before then. I don't know. Uh, nice. I'll tell you one thing. Armed Forces Day this year is in Stirling. I think that's very significant. Okay. Yes. Um, or it could be a coincidence. <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's going to be a lot of discussion there. Dr Colin Fleming, thank you very much for thank joining us much. today. Uh, before we go, it has been announced in the last few hours that Lieutenant General Sir Nicholas Carter is to be the new Chief of General Staff. He will take over from General Sir Peter Wall in September. I have, have to confess, I've actually had to phone the Ministry of Defence before now and said uh, has General Carter been formally announced yet? Uh, so it has happened today. It's going to come to a surprise to nobody in the uh, to the military community, but uh, what do you know of the man, Christopher? It's, it's, it, it, they're probably going to get one of the uh, certainly a person would rate with the last uh, CDS uh, General Richards uh, top man, and they've had to wait to renew this job until he was everything was in position. Interesting, uh, a new CDS not from the last board of chiefs of staff. This is one to watch for the future. Yeah, it's uh, going to be an interesting time. Uh, experience in Afghanistan, uh, one tour in Iraq, three in Afghanistan, and a lot of work on reconstruction. We will hope to talk to him soon. That's it for this week. Thanks to Christopher Lee and all our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP, and you can listen again to the programme online. We're back at the same time next week, but for me for now, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Sports, sport and music, music for the British forces. This is BF.